Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Welcome everybody. My name is Michael. If this is your first time here, this is our Sutra Study Sunday. Every Sunday night, we're looking at a different Buddhist text, different Buddhist sutra. Uh, although this month of November, we've actually been spending all month on the Brahmajala Sutra, otherwise known as the Sutra of Brahma's Net. Um, and I'm not going to go through too much of what we've covered already, but I do for anybody who wasn't here, or actually just to get us back to, up to speed where we were. Um, uh, a few things about this sutra, interestingly enough, the sutra is set up as a story, like all sutras are, and the story is, is that the Buddha was traveling, so he actually wasn't anywhere. Whereas most sutras are like, he was in Rajgriha, he was in Nalanda, he was in Magadha, he was here, he was there. This sutra, he was actually traveling between Rajgriha and Nalanda. Interesting that he's in transit. And behind him are these two Brahmins. But these Brahmins are like all Brahmins back in the day of the Buddha. They were ascetics, wanderers, also yogins, practitioners. And these two Brahmins, there's an older and a younger, a teacher and a student. The young student, Brahmadatta, is like, isn't it great? The Buddhists don't kill anything. Isn't it great? The Buddhists don't do false speech. And the Buddha keeps saying it's just an average worldling who doesn't get it yet. It's only your average worldling that would praise the Buddha because he doesn't take life, doesn't kill, doesn't steal, doesn't... It goes on to say at the end of this, this whole section about all the rules and that this is why people would praise, the Buddha says, but there are monks, other matters, profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, excellent, beyond mere thought, subtle, to be experienced by the wise, which the Buddha, having realized them by his own Super knowledge proclaims, and about which those who would truthfully praise the Tathagata would speak rightfully. And what are these matters? And this is where I left it last week. So all of these rules, all of these precepts that the Buddha does, not killing, stealing, lying, and it goes through all of them. The sutra says that's no reason to get worked up. That's no reason to praise the Tathagata or the Buddha. He says, here's why. These are the matters that are more profound that the Tathagata or the Buddha is worthy of praise. And what this section is, and this is a very long section that I'm not going to read in its entirety. What this section is, is an outline of the so-called 62 views, sometimes known as the 62 false views or wrong views or inferior views. There's a lot of uh, adjectives that could get inserted in here. But before we dive into this section, I need everybody to be on the same page about what a view is. The word that's being discussed here is a drishti. That's that word in parentheses there. And I did a Dharma talk on drishti here a few Fridays ago. Assuming you weren't there, though, you may be familiar with the term drishti if you've done yoga, like asana yoga, uh, because a lot of times that 
term gets used and what it means, even kind of what the word drishti means, is a, is a gaze. Like to look, but to look like kind of afar, that kind of a view. So drishti gets translated as a view in that sense or a gaze. But in yoga, they're talking about a gaze with these eyes. And if you're doing your warrior, you might gaze at your finger. Or if you're doing some downward position, you might, uh, your drishti might be on your toes. A lot of times a drishti for meditation is the tip of your nose. That's where the gaze should be. This is all using drishti very literally, meaning a gaze. But in Indian thinking, Indian philosophy, religion, what have you, a drishti is, is used as a, is a view, but as a, like, a world view. And this is what I did my Dharma talk on a few Fridays ago, which is that this idea of a drishti, of a world view, this is like a, a faith. Everybody has a drishti, has a view of what's going on here, what's important, what's valuable. That is a drishti. And again, usually we would re- reserve the word faith for people that they believe in God or they believe in this. But what I'm kind of saying and what this is, sutra is definitely saying is that we all have a view. We all have an opinion of what's going on here. And even if you are a steadfast, scientific materialist, you think this is all just fancy dirt dancing around somehow some, some chaos theory of math and statistics brought together a bunch of dirt and look it's having an experience and it's just going to fall apart and die so better have fun while it lasts that's a view not everybody has that view but a lot of people have that view again there's all kinds of views and what a view does is it well it does a lot of things but it determines behavior Because the things you do, the things you decide to do, the things you value, the things you don't value, all stem from your drishti, all stem from your worldview. So tonight, we're going to all put our worldviews under the microscope. Ask ourselves, what's my drishti? And hopefully, in an hour and a half or hour 20 minutes, we'll end up with a clear understanding of not the Buddhist drishti, we'll have a better understanding of what the Buddhist dharma is regarding drishti, regarding views. All right, so that was a very well carefully uh, stated (laughs) sentence there. But all right, so what we have on the board, and I've taken the time to write them all out here. These are the 62 views. And what's going to be the most amazing thing about these once we go through them is that this sutra is, you know, definitely 2,000 years old. Definitely. By all accounts, it's closer to 2,500 years old, 2,500 years, so from about 500 BC, roughly. It could even be older than that, but, you know, a good 2,000 years. What's interesting is that all of these views, these 62 views, were the dominant drishtis of the day. These were all the ways that you could see the world going down. And again, we're going to get into all the nitty-gritty of this, but the idea is, is that All of these represented the views of the world from 2,500 years ago. And what's fascinating is is that the jury is still out. Nobody knows. How crazy is that? That there's still people walking around with all 62 of these views and nobody, we don't know yet. 
even with all our fancy microscopes and telescopes and everything, we don't know yet. That alone is worth reflection. That we still don't know. You would think by now we would know, right? So when we go through these, please don't be like, oh yeah, those people from ancient times were so, wow, they really had some crazy ideas. No, we have crazy ideas now. And again, what I'm hoping to do is show how our own drishtis are at play. And then, again, ultimately wind up at a, a Buddhist understanding of drishtis. Uh, the views in this sutra are divided into 18 views about the past. And then the rest, I forget what that totals, but the rest concerning the future. So at first, these 62 might seem like, whoa, he's going to talk about 62 worldviews. Yeah, I'm going to do it in like 15 minutes, too. So, and the way, the way to do that is, is this great schematic where what we're talking about, and, and, and if I've lost anybody, let's be clear. What we're talking about is, is um, where did all of this come from, meaning you, the world, creation, where did it come from, and what happens when you die? What happens to your soul? Do you think you have a soul? That's one of these. Actually, it's a whole category. But the idea is, is that these are about what we think happens when we die. And these are about how we think we got here to begin with. Right? So that's our first division. And the sutra goes in order, goes through these 18 first, and then all of those. So I'm going to kind of more or less do it in that order. In order to give you, again, I'm not going to read them all, but I want you to know how this reads so that if you go off and read them, you will be familiar with the language because it's a little cryptic if you don't know exactly what's being spoken about, but it's actually not cryptic. It's pretty straightforward. So after he says that there are these matters that are way more profound, way more subtle that the Buddha should be praised for, then he says, there are monks some ascetics and Brahmins who are speculators about the past, having fixed views about the past and who put forward various speculative theories about the past in 18 different ways. On what basis, on what grounds do they do so? There are some ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists, right? who proclaim the eternity of the self, the Atman, and the world, the Loka. And they do so in four ways. So they think that the whole world and everybody in it is eternal in four different ways. Here, monks, a certain ascetic or Brahman, has by means of effort, exertion, application, earnestness, and right attention attained to such a meditative state of mental, mental concentration that he thereby recalls past experiences. One birth, two births, three, four, five, ten births, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand births, several hundred, several thousand, several hundred thousand births. There, my name was so-and-so, and my clan was so-and-so, and my caste was such-and-such, and, and the food I ate which was such-and-such. Such. I experienced such-and-such such pleasant and painful conditions then. I lived for so long. Having passed away from there, I arose there. There, my name was so-and-so, and then having passed away from there, I arose here. 
And thus he remembers various past lives, their conditions and details. And he says, the self and the world are eternal, like a mountain peak set firmly as a post, all these beings rushing around it, circulating, passing away and re-arising. But this remains eternally. Why so? Because I have, by means of effort, exertion, attained to such a state of mental concentration that I have thereby recalled all of my various past experiences, da 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 And that is how I know that the self and the world are eternal. That is the first way in which some ascetics and Brahmins proclaim the eternity of the self and the world. By the way, this is sort of the standard view. They start with the first one. This is the standard view of the day. A infinite process of death and rebirth, but there is essentially a fixed number of souls, if you will, if you care to use that term soul. There's a fixed number of Atman that are going through this various cycle of birth in heavenly realms and then falling into terrestrial realms, falling further into animal ghostly realms, back up to human realms, maybe back up to godly realms, up oh, back down to animal realm, back up to human realm. And just cycling around forever, forever and ever and ever, round and round and round. And someone, some ascetics and Brahmins would say that this is the case because they've seen it. They're like, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I, I went into a dhyana. I went into a deep dhyana and I saw my past life. I was so-and-so, such-and-such. I ate this such food. Therefore, I know that's what's going on because I had that experience, right? So everybody see how this is going? Now, we're in the West out here. Uh, This isn't sort of the predominant view, but it's some people's view. And certainly in the world today, it is still a, a view. Definitely, right? Ah, now though, not just from that, but then... And what is the second way? Here, monks, a certain ascetic or Brahmin has by means of effort and exertion attained to such a state of meditative mental concentration that he thereby recalls one period of contraction and expansion of the universe. Two such periods of expansion and contraction. Three, four, five, ten periods of contraction and expansion of the universe. And he knows, there my name was so-and-so, da-da-da-da-da. And that is the second way in which some ascetics and Brahmins proclaim the eternity of the self and the world. So if you look further past this view, you will find that even, this is a Buddhist cosmological view, that even the universe, not the planet, not our solar system, but the whole universe goes through these vast vast periods of expansion and contraction, big bang, big shrink type stuff, where basically there's a formation of a, of a vortex of wind, and then on that wind there's a water and then earth, and then things start to grow on the earth, and the whole universe starts to expand into existence. And then slowly, through a process I won't get into, starts to degrade back down to nothingness complete nothingness and there is a vast period of absolute nothingness 
And then there's this vortex of wind that appears and then everything starts to build up again and up again and then it contracts. And so what this ascetic or Brahman is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. I went into an even deeper samadhi and I saw that the whole thing is infinitely expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting, going through these periods. I saw it 10 times. I saw that far and therefore I can attest to it being eternal. The world and all the souls in it just going around and around and around these vast, culpic epics. The third one reads the same way, but then some ascetic or Brahman experiences 10 to 40 periods of expansion and contraction and expansion and contraction. And that person says, now I really know it's eternal because I've seen it that far into the past. And then the fourth way, and actually I'll read this one, but you'll see it pops up uh, occasionally. The fourth, and what is the fourth way, monks? Here, a certain ascetic or Brahman is a logician, a reasoner, hammering it out by reason, following his own line of thought. He argues the self and the world are eternal. Like a mountain peak set firmly as a post, beings rushing around it, circulating, passing away, and re-arising. But all this remains forever. This is the fourth way in which some ascetics and Brahmins proclaim the eternity of the self and the world. So not by experience, but by logically hammering it out. They feed it all into the supercomputer, and the computer goes, ding, 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 eternal. And they go, yeah, yeah, I haven't been in the deep samadhis like those other guys. I haven't seen my past lies. I haven't seen the past existences of the universe. But I can logically figure it out that it must be eternal. Those are the first four ways in which the, these are the four views, right? Everybody good with these views? Yep. And in all four, the soul is eternal. And the world. Soul and world. Yeah. Yes. Now the next is a, what is called these, uh, he calls them part eternalists and then part non-eternalists. Right? And then just to give you a taste of this, and this one's actually very interesting, and this will kind of, um, if anybody's studied any, like, theology and not necessarily just Christian theology, but if you've studied any theology, this will sound very interesting. So this is just um, wrong view number five here. There are, monks, some ascetics and Brahmins who are partly eternalists and partly non-eternalists, who proclaim the partial eternity and the partial non-eternity of the self and the world in four ways. On what grounds do they do so? There comes a time, monks, sooner or later, after a long period, when this world contracts, this universe contracts. And at a time of contraction, beings are mostly reborn in the Abharasa Brahma heaven. So not even in this terrestrial realm, but in a heavenly realm. And there they dwell. Mind-made, so not of rupa, not of form. They are mind-made, feeding on delight, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. And they stay like that for a very long time. But the time comes sooner or later after a long period when this world begins to expand again. 
And in this expanding world, an empty palace of Brahma appears, an empty heavenly realm. And then one being, from the exhaustion of his lifespan or of his merits, falls from the Abhasara world and arises in this empty Brahma palace heaven. And there he dwells, mind-made, feeding on delight, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. And he stays like that for a very long time. Then, in this being, who has been alone for so long, there arises unrest, (laughs) discontent, and worry. And he thinks, oh, if only some other beings would come here. And other beings, from exhaustion of their lifespan or of their merits, fall from the Abarasa world and arise in the Brahma palace as companions for that being. And there they dwell, mind made, feeding on delight, and they stay like that for a very long time. And then monks, that being who first arose there in that empty Brahma heaven, thinks, I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, the all-powerful, the Lord, the maker, the creator, ruler, appointer, and orderer, father of all that has been and all that shall be. These beings were created by me. How so? Because I first had this thought, thinking, oh, if only some other beings would come here. That was my wish, and then these beings came into existence. But those beings who arose subsequently, they think, this, friends, is Brahma, great Brahma, conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, the all-powerful, the Lord, the maker and creator, ruler, appointer and order, father of all that has been and all that will be. How so? We have seen that he was here first and that we arose after him. And this being that arose first is longer lived, more beautiful, and more powerful than they are. And it may happen that some beings, being falls from that realm and arises in this world. Having arisen in this world, he goes forth, he goes forth from the household life into homelessness. Having gone forth, He, by means of effort, exertion, application, earnestness, and right attention, attains to such a degree of meditative mental concentration that he thereby recalls his last existence, but recalls none before that. And he thinks, that Brahma, he made us, and he is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, the same forever and ever. But we, who were created by that Brahma, We are impermanent, unstable, short-lived, fated to fall away, and we have come into this world. This is the first case where some ascetics and Brahmins are partly eternalists and partly non-eternalists. There is a lot in there. There's a lot in there that I won't get into. But there's hints of theism. There's definitely hints of like a lot of uh, Gnosticism and things like that. What happens with the second and the third is that he says it's not great Brahma that falls to this lesser place and then says, you know, I'm lonely and so draws some beings from the other realm. It's just a deva, but it, a big deva. And then this one, it's an even lesser deva that, this, that does this. So this is where you're really getting in. If you know about Gnosticism and the, the notion of a Gnosticism is a, a view that the the Jewish God, the Yahweh, is, is like a lesser God, a deva, who created this world and kind of is trapping beings in it, but thinks he's God when he's not really God. So there's a whole like 
religious tradition, Gnosticism, which many types of Christianity are rather Gnostic, um, that are kind of fit within this part eternal, part not eternal. And what's being referred to there is sort of like the idea that God is eternal, but we are not. Like we're just, you know, little frail human beings. And so there's something that's eternal, but not everything. So that's what these are. And then, of course, the fourth of, of this is that some ascetic or Brahmin, some is a logician and just hammers this out by logic. They just figure this out by logic. They don't even need to go experience these Brahma heavens and be like, oh, there's a guy Brahma here that thinks he's God. And we just do it by logic. Questions? So this is like, how do these people come to believe this nonsense? It's sort of the, the thing. Indeed, indeed, you like, should. This is how they come to these. You, it is very values. important to understand that all of this is being, uh, well, except for by logic, but everything else is being experienced in a meditative state. Right, but the, the explanation is how do people come to believe these things? Yeah, yeah, and, and when he says you. that by exertion, by effort, by achieving such a meditative mental state, they see either past lives, they see Brahma. So the idea is there's like a direct experience of this. And I would, lo- I would like to throw into this because it's not going to come up anywhere else, so I just want to do it now. What's being spoken about here is, is like... Um, in any of these so far, all eight of these, uh, taking a substance that then opens up the world and you see whatever you see and then you come back and you're like, no, 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 I know. I know this is going on because I've seen it. I saw the machine elves or whatever. I've seen it. And what this is warning against is like, just because you experienced something, let's not get carried away. And even though things we experience seem very real and therefore categorically absolute, just be careful with that. All right, but I'm getting a little ahead of the game. Yeah. So in the scene one on number one, I was just, when you were telling the story the first time, there was a little bit of like uh, memory. So I'm wondering, is there, is one of the versions where you're remembering the past lives and then that's the argument they're using? And then the other version is that what happens is you go into the deep meditative state, and in the deep meditative state, you're having the direct experience of seeing the past lives that you were. But there's two different channels. One is you see it. Yep. The other one, it's like you're an observer in the meditation looking across a scene. Yep. Those are you're identifying. And then in another situation, what happens is in a deep meditation, you have memorial experience that takes you back. It's like mental time travel. You travel back through the individual lives, and then you remember. And the reason why I'm asking is because the reason why there's going to be one group that has the logic view is because some of the schools deny that memory is a way. Yeah. And so some of those schools are like, we will not take the memory route to acknowledge uh, yeah. this argument. We can't because we don't think memory is a pramana, for example. Yes. I don't want to get too into the nitty gritty about um, memory versus memory. Ver- yeah. But I will get into what you were just saying, though, which is this idea that you should know that within Indian philosophy, as Anand was just saying, there is a, a, a branch or a way of doing it that denies experiences had in meditation. Because it's kind of like, but I can, you know, almost like scientific method style where it's like, but I didn't, I didn't get to go there. So how would I know? That's great that you had this experience, but how am I going to know? Therefore, that's no grounds for establishing a proof. 
just your experience. No, no, we got to bang this out logically on paper so that it's all watertight. So yeah, that's where that one falls in, definitely. So, um, I have a question. Yeah. The logicians, are they, like, what are the axioms they're starting with? <laughs> you know, it doesn't say, and I would encourage you, like in each case, I, I don't know, but I would encourage you to think about this in a way with any view. I, I want to I talk a little bit more about modern worldviews and where they might fit in. I kind of put a few, like hedonism and materialism, I put a few in here. Um, but I think what's more interesting is sort of like, um, yeah, I mean, we'll get to it, but this idea of like scientific materialism, it's all just fancy dirt, having an experience, it's going to go back into the ground. You could sort of have that drishti, you could have that view because you've had some experience that's like, you know, a mystical experience in a river where you're like, oh my God, like it's all one, you know, whatever, right? So you could have an experience that just shows you that that's what's going on, but you could also go into a science class and it could be like, nope, here's all the elements on the periodic table and we could bang this out and prove it on paper that this is what's going on. So I don't know the axioms they're starting with. And, and again, for me, it's more about this position that we can just figure this out logically. And then that'll be good. It's like, it gets really interesting to me because like, they've seen a few experiences and thus they claim that it is infinite. And that's in itself logically incorrect. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, <laughs> I wonder who's like, why aren't the logicians disagreeing with one, two, three, as opposed to... Well, but these are, these are logicians who have come to this conclusion. These are logicians who have come to this conclusion. These are logicians who have come to this conclusion. These are logicians that have come to that conclusion. Yeah, so it's not... The logicians are not in here as a category, if you know what I mean. Like, one approach. Yeah. Okay. Now, the finite and infinite self and world. So this is both finite and infinite, right? And this is actually speaking specifically about the loka, the world, not uh, the soul or the self. These sort of pertain a little bit more to the self, the atman, and this one actually pertains to the world. So the first one, let's see, that would be... Number nine. I'll just read the first one and then tell you about the rest. So number nine. There are monks, some ascetics and Brahmins, who are finitists. They believe the world is finite and infinitists. They believe it's infinite. And who proclaim the finitude and infinitude of the world on four grounds. What are they? Here, a certain ascetic or Brahmin has by means of effort attained to such a state of mental concentration that he dwells perceiving the world as finite. And he thinks this world is finite, bounded by a circle. How so? Because I have attained to such a state of concentration that I dwelled perceiving the world as finite. This is the first case. So, and then the second one is infinite and unbounded, up and down and across. The third one is actually a finite world up and down, but infinite across. All I can say regarding this is that if anybody has, you know, noted or paid any attention to the current flat earth debate and this idea about it being an infinite expanding plane, but bounded on top and bottom by a dome or by some 
something. The world is finite on top and bottom, but infinite across. Or infinite up and infinite across. Or our worldview, finite, bounded, across and up and down. That's our worldview regarding this, uh, or, uh, sorry, apologies. That is a generally accepted worldview regarding (laughs) this world. I really apologize, actually, because I know I'm talking to the right group. But that's what the, and then the fourth one is biologic. So I've I've never been up on a rocket ship. I've never been here or there. But I, on paper, feed it into the big machine and ding, 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 pow, finite and infinite, or what have you. Everybody good on this without going down rabbit holes? Cool. The next section is this funny section with the four eel wriggling. This is a term. <laughs> so I'll actually, I'll start with the fourth one and work my way up. But these are basically positions. They're views. You can have this view, but they're sort of like nonsensical positions in the sense that Number four is somebody, it's like, well, do you think it's finite? Nope. Do you think it's infinite? Nope. Do you think it's this? Nope. Do you think it's that? Nope. 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 Like a little kid, just nope, 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 nope. And there's a way in which that could be the view, but ultimately the Buddha is going to have a problem with that view and see it as just a rhetorical position of negation. Avoiding conflict, which is like, well, I don't want to offend the round earth people with my flat earth view. So I'm going to actually not take a position either way. So it's this, I'm going to avoid conflict. I'm going to avoid pissing people off by not having a final position. Or this kind of appeal to non-attachment. I don't have a view. Now, this is going to sound vaguely familiar to our Buddha Dharma. But it's not, because this is non-committal. The non-attachment is not committing to any argument. Uh, you think the world's finite? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Infinite? Maybe, maybe not. Right? So it's kind of like the just negation, but it's sort of like the, well, maybe, maybe not. And that sort of never arrives anywhere or never gets anywhere, soteriologically or otherwise, if you know what I mean. Everybody okay with these four and understanding these is just like... Uh, oh, and the wriggling is just the... It's this term for like like uh, evasion. It's kind of like just pure rhetorical evasion, never really getting into it. It's a whole kind of, um, again, a lot of this is referring to things that we don't know about and don't talk about, which are Indian philosophical traditions. Again, these are all traditional views of the world, or at least ways of talking about the world. And so you can describe the past of the world and self by just evading it. This is like a, a... a slick talker at a party that just talks to you all night and sounds like, wow, wow. But in the end, you're like, what did they say? Did they say anything? That's kind of wriggling, right? And now our chance origin. This is probably going to be, the, a lot of folks nowadays have that one. So let me read that one. So the basic idea of this one is there are monks, some ascetics and Brahmins, who are chance originationists and who proclaim the chance origin of the self and the world on two grounds. What are they? Uh, there are monks, uh, da, 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 certain, da, da, da. I'm going to just try to compact this. And it may happen that a being falls from a higher realm and arises in this world. He, recall, he does not recall his last existence. And he thinks, 
The self and the world have arisen by chance. How so? Before this, I did not exist. Now, from not being, I have been brought into being. That is the first case. What is the second? Here, an ascetic or Brahman is a logician, a reasoner. He hammers it out, his own opinion, and declares the self and the world have arisen by chance. So this doesn't get a lot of airtime or a lot of play in this sutra because I think back in the day that was not a very dominant worldview. Interesting how it is a dominant worldview now, right? Regarding your, you know, the sense of where did I come from, a lot of, not, again, not us, but a lot of folks fall into the category of from non-being. I wasn't. I wasn't before. Look, here I am. Right? Or, again, just from logic. We can just pound this out that the world, chaos theory. This is basically chaos theory. That you, you wait around long enough and the ooze will turn into life. Right? Will turn into a single cell organism and that'll split if you wait long enough. Chant, total chance. That's a worldview. All right, so we're done with the 18 views of the past. Any questions? What is, what's the cultural context? This, this may be too deep for this conversation, but what's the cultural context of like we went from or like that part of the world at that time believed in 1 through 16 as the dominant view and now? Like, what's changed around kind of? That now it's like that's the dominant view? I would just first. For expediency's sake, I would say that this is, um, yeah, except for a couple over there, this is one of the only ones that says no soul. There's no soul. And what, why I say that is, is that until recently, everybody thought there was soul. Everybody thought there was, you were going somewhere, going up to heaven or going rebirth or something, like something. So the idea of like just no soul, no just out of nothingness, that's like, how does that even work next? Whereas now we have so let go of the idea of a soul or a self and have adopted other <coughs> worldviews or whatever, that that's a little more plausible, feasible, or possible to us. Whereas again, you know, if you just look at the history of the world, the role of religion, the role of theism, God worship, like everybody believed in you know, something. This is kind of like, not nothing, nothing. It's total chaos, right? All right, ready to move into the future? So this is all about where the world came from and where the self came from, right? Now we're talking about the future, and it starts with 16 views of a future conscious self. This will be contracted with eight views of a future unconscious self and then contrasted with eight views of a future neither conscious nor unconscious self or soul or what have you. And then we'll get into the last two. So these, uh, the 16 and 8 and 8 are kind of this, talking about the soul or the, the consciousness. And in fact, my, all of my language of soul is like a, a kind of talking about self and atman. All right, so no, nowhere in here is the idea of a soul, soul, soul. All right, so please, if this is your first time here, know that we're not talking about souls. I'm, I'm speaking, I'm using that English word very loosely. In fact, what, what's a better word is consciousness because it's what they're talking about. And so, you die. 
Where does your consciousness go? Well, some ascetics and Brahmins believe that there is a conscious self that exists in a material form. All right, so it's in material form, conscious after death, versus an immaterial consciousness. So it cannot be put in a container, put in a box, held in any way. It's more ephemeral, it's more metaphysical, to use that word. Some ascetics in Brahman believe that the future conscious self is both material and immaterial, and then some argue that it is neither material nor immaterial. Please keep in mind that it, uh, the way this is going down is very related to the way the first half of the sutra went down. What I mean by that is the first half of the sutra went through all these rules. And like one of the rules was about uh, not, um, well, it actually was referring to right livelihood and a livelihood that it subsists on begging, right? And then, so he, the, the sutra states that rule, but then it goes off for paragraph after paragraph about, and, and what I mean by that is, is don't be this kind of fortune teller and don't be that kind of fortune teller and don't do that kind of fortune telling or this kind of fortune telling or that kind of, and he goes through all the various types of fortune telling that were popular at the day to make it very clear, you know, it's all of it, buddy, all of them, like any which one that you want to fit in. And so I refer to that with these, whereas this is covering every logical base that you could come at the Buddha with. Immaterial, immaterial, material and immaterial, neither material, like any possible configuration of this, right? But what they're talking about, oh, let me finish this up then, yeah. So what they're talking about is a future conscious self that's material. Um, you know, it's an interesting place to put this one is uh, um, uh, this obsession with um, downloading your consciousness. This obsession with trying to get a future conscious self in a material form. After you die, material conscious self in a machine, right? Now, what's interesting about this pursuit of cramming our consciousness into a computer machine or whatever is that that whole effort is really pushing us to ask ourselves, what is consciousness? Is it something that can be put in a bottle, i.e. in a computer? Is it material? So the, if you wanted to download your consciousness after you die and you thought that was possible, you would be a material future conscious self-ist, right? Now, if you think, no, 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 I think my self, my consciousness goes on, but in a disembodied form, like in some sort of bardo ephemeral realm, that's immaterial. And then there's all kinds of ways that it could be kind of it's in, it's in the computer, but it's meta. It's like it's in the hard drive, but it's, it's beyond the hard drive, right? It's both, and it's both or neither. You can't even conceive of what your consciousness is after you die. But I know it exists. I know in the future, after I die, I will be conscious. 
And materially, immaterially, both are neither. And I know that in the future my consciousness will be finite, meaning limited to my little computer and just my node in the internet, or infinite, meaning I'm going to be in the whole internet. I'm going to be unbounded, right? Transcendent in that way. Maybe a both finite and infinite, or neither finite nor infinite. This whole section about having uniform perception, varied perception, limited perception, or unlimited perception, this is the idea that after you die, you will exist consciously, <coughs> and you will basically have what you have now, which is uniform perception. Or varied perception, a little more psychedelic, where it's like, whoa, I don't know what's going on here. My perception is varied. Limited perception, just my, like, I have limited perception here. I don't get to see what's behind here. Or unlimited perception. After I die, I get to see 360, 720, a million. Everybody follow me on this? It's all ideas of a future self. And then the future conscious self is happy. It's nice to be dead and conscious. It's terrible, miserable to be dead and conscious. It's both happy and miserable because maybe I go to heaven, maybe I go to hell. Or being dead and conscious is indescribable. It's neither beyond. And there are people who believe or who have the view that the self exists in the future in one of these 16 ways. Or there's eight views of a future unconscious self. So a material unconscious self. I put chirogenics. So the idea of like, oh, no, 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 I die. Then they put me in the freezer. So I'm materially unconscious. I'm not aware, but I exist. And then maybe they'll thaw me out and I'll, you know, get back into consciousness mode. But the idea that your consciousness could exist post-mortem but in an unconscious state, materially or immaterially, meaning my consciousness pops out, but I'm, it's unconscious, just floating around, I don't know, being abused by demons or something, I don't know. It's both or neither. And then a future unconscious self that is finite, a future unconscious self that is infinite, both and neither. And then our eight views of a future neither conscious nor unconscious. Right? Anytime in Buddhism you hear, see the language of neither conscious nor unconscious, they are talking about a deep, deep meditative state that cannot be understood as, in terms of being perceptive, perceptibly aware of something or not perceptibly aware. We're, we're beyond the distinction of perceptibly aware of something versus not being perceptibly aware. It's neither nor. And so there are eight views of a future self that is neither conscious nor unconscious, materially, immaterially, both or neither, finite, infinite, both or neither. We're covering all the bases here, if you haven't noticed. Any possible configuration of an idea of a post-mortem existence? Question. That last section? Which is one? That, is that, um, this one? No, no, the one that you just mentioned, I, I, neither or none or whatever. Yep. So that's just like... Do they know what the fuck they're talking about? Um, because I, I don't, I definitely don't know what they're talking about. But did, 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 did they know what they meant? Yeah, they did. And again, they're referring to states of being that don't easily fall into these categories of conscious and unconscious because those are really kind of human, all too human categories. 
it's all wacky? I mean, is that what they're doing? It, they're doing you something? with your human mind can't, can't go there. If you were disembodied, deep meditative state, or yeah. dead, then yeah. you'd understand. Okay. And that consciousness that is neither conscious nor unconscious could be in a, some kind of material form, an immaterial form, both or neither. And that conscious, sorry, that neither conscious nor unconscious post-mortem self could also be finite, infinite, neither nor. Is this, are those views, are they referring to like a state of meditation that like people do commonly experience, neither conscious nor, neither perceiving nor nor, because I've heard that term before. Yes. Yeah. And where, oh my gosh. So what happens is, let me save it for the end and I'll explain it in more detail. Very quickly though, I want to go through these seven views of annihilation. So this is, and I'll read the first one of that. So there are amongst some ascetics and Brahmins who are annihilationists, who proclaim the total annihilation, destruction, and non-existence of beings after death. And they do so in seven ways. On what basis? Here, a certain ascetic or Brahmin declares and holds this view, saying, since the self is material, Composed of the four great elements, the product of mother and father, at the breaking up of the body, it is annihilated and perishes. It does not exist after death. This is the way in which this self is annihilated. And this is how some proclaim the annihilation, destruction, and non-existence of beings after death. All right? So that, again, is just straight up what we would call scientific materialism. Made of, it says the four great elements, p- the periodic table of elements. It's just made of the elements together, going to fall apart. So that is number one, materialism. Now, the next six of these, what they talk about is, is that, yes, there is the destruction, the, the annihilation, but there is a divine self that also eventually breaks up and destroys. But it isn't destroyed when this body is destroyed. There's also some people that think there's a dhyanic soul or a consciousness that is in a dhyana state and that when this body breaks up, that self or consciousness will continue in that dhyanic state but will eventually come to nility, come to nothingness. There's other people that think that there is a, uh, a, a realm of infinite space and a consciousness that's in the realm of infinite space. There's also an infinite consciousness realm, an infinite nothingness realm, and then finally a neither conscious nor unconsciousness realm. And the idea of all of these is that, yes, when this body breaks up, there is a consciousness that can escape to these other realms, but there too will eventually disintegrate. What's happening with all of these, the, these kind of, well, the, let these last, is they're referring to, uh, they're actually referring to the expansion and contraction of the world. So just to go back to that really quickly, world forms is created, expands. There's a period of creation, a period of duration where it exists, a period of collapse, and then a period of nothing. And then a period of creation, period of duration, 
period of collapse, period of nothingness. That's the expansion and contraction going over and over and over again. What they talk about in Buddhist cosmology is that after the world is created and then after the world endures for a, a kalpa, a mahakalpa, uh, eventually seven suns, seven giant suns appear in the sky and begin to scorch the universe. And they start to, this, the heat from these suns scorches the hell realms, the animal realms, the human realms, and eventually destroys everything up to the first dhyana. So anybody in the second, third, or fourth dhyanic states, these meditative states, they are spared the destruction of the world. However, after these seven suns appear and destroy the whole universe and bringing it back to a period of nothingness, and then it's created again, and it endures, and then the seven suns appear, and it all destroys, and then that happens again, and seven suns appear. After the seven suns appear seven times... That is followed by this giant deluge. This water appears and deluges the entire universe, and that destroys everybody, including the second dhyana. So only the people in the third and the fourth dhyana, the, the meditators in those realms, are stay. After, so seven suns, you know, water. After seven deluges, so after the Suns have appeared seven times, there's been a deluge. Suns have seven times, there's a deluge. After seven deluges, there is this giant tornado, a wind phenomena that destroys everything. And it's only people in Upeksha, in the fourth dhyana, that are spared this. This is sort of the general cosmological view that there are these more ethereal realms that don't get touched by the fire, the water, and the wind. All right? And it was the view for a long time and still is within certain traditions that if you, if anybody could make it to the fourth dhyana, make it to these upper realms, that was moksha. That was liberation because you were now good. You would not be scorched by the suns. You would not be in, in, you know, inundated by the deluge or blown away by the wind. You're good. And this idea of the, the I, no, I've been through 10 of these. No, no, I've been through 40 of these expansion. I've, been, I've seen the suns appear. I've been through the deluge. I know how this goes. The Buddha supposedly in his great wisdom and his deep meditative state saw that even all the beings in the fourth realm and higher eventually fall back down. That there's no true actual escaping of impermanence, of the decay of all of that, all right? So when they're talking about a consciousness that is, has escaped and they're in this, these, and now we're actually talking about samadhis, but a samadhi of infinite space, they're talking about beings in these ethereal realms. And this, well, these are saying that there are some people that think, no, there's a future neither conscious nor unconscious self that can exist in this place, in this state of neither perception. Bray with me on these? So these all seven are saying, no, yeah, everything comes to, uh, these are all forms of what would be called nihilism, but this would be the only one that would be nihilism as it's normally defined. Because we sort of don't entertain ideas of conscious escape of this body. 
These people entertain ideas of conscious escape of this body, but they're saying, and it still comes to nothingness. It still eventually disintegrates. Yes? I you mentioned this, but uh, so we've got souls and then infinite uh, conscious souls, nothingness souls. <laughs> what you, but you're not using the word soul as the Christian. No, and that's what I tried to, to, to dispel. Yeah, I'm talking about whatever that might be. Consciousness, I guess. And so there's some sort of awareness in, in level two through level seven. So consciousness, some kind of awareness going on. Yeah, but it gets very tricky to talk about in this idea of, I mean, because we are talking about, especially when we're talking about uh, samadhis or these dhyana realms, we're talking about non-embodied consciousness. So in a sense, it's moving towards a non-dual state in that way. So it gets very tricky to talk singularly about these things, but they are talking about them singularly. And so I use this word soul, but yeah, it's like ignore soul. So would, a, would this be thought of to have a conception of identity or association? It's like a, con- a conception of experience, a conception of, of an experience being had maybe, but all of this starts to get really problematic. Really, because these word things are really terrestrial down here things. And when you start getting up there, it's like neither conscious nor unconscious. That's like the most we could articulate. Uh Michael, this would be whatever uh, conceivably would go through the bardo after we we die. And then if that happens. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I, I felt comfortable using this word soul is because all of none of these are buddhist right these are all folks that believe very much in this atman and the idea of a self is tricky because you know people identify self with their name their occupation their this and this and that and atman is this deeper self self that you know Michael is male, Michael is this, but my Atman, last birth it might have been female, last birth it might have been a dog, last, who knows, so the Atman, what, what, I don't know what you want to call that Atman. With your essence? Yeah, I mean, it's closer to actually what the word is getting at, so, you know, but yeah, that gets a little new age though, my, yeah, infinite <laughs> space, yeah, yeah, I mean, we all know what I'm talking about. Right? The idea is, is that something survives death. Atman is what they would call it. That's what survives death. That is the recipient of these experiences. Is the under the seven annihilation use, like are four, five, six, seven would roughly correspond to what's also sometimes called the fifth, six, seventh, eight Chana states? Yeah. Yes, but not in a Buddhist context in just a more what would be called like a yoga context that a bunch of people are going up into the dhyanas and a bunch of people have ideas about the dhyanas. So, but that is what's being referred to in, in these infinite space consciousness, nothingness, and neither nor. Yeah. Yeah, Go. I'm roughly the same area. Um, is there a tip-off in the text about what schools are talking about? No, there is no uh, indication. And, you know, these 62 views... 
you'll see this used a lot in, in Buddhist literature where they talk about the 62 views. Sometimes they just talk about uh, eternalists and non-eternalists, like that's the debate. Um, and so they seem to be referring to a whole world of things that were going on, but the sutra doesn't get, name any names. Yeah, because like, sometimes you can like, see, like, oh, that, they got me picking on the Vedanta view there. And then other places, like, they're picking on the Charvaka right there. It's yes. Like you can, but then in some of the other cases, it's, I'm, not, I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out who would have occupied that position. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I mean, that's interesting, I think, but it's also interesting to see what modern drishtis, what modern worldviews we still have that still could fit in here, you know? Um, in fact, I feel like we're low on drishti these days, you know? It's like we only got a couple of possibilities for what could be happening here. Here's 62 possibilities, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason why we're low on drishtis these days <laughs> is because almost all these 62 do not meet the modern criteria of evidence. Oh, but I beg to differ because... As I mentioned at the beginning, the jury is still out on all of this. Nobody can prove anything regarding uh, post-mortem existence. Nothing. It's all a drishti. It's all a view. It's all a, a, a faith statement at that point. Any, any scientist, any, anybody that says this is what happens when you die, that's a statement of faith. Nobody knows anything. And that, otherwise, it would have been resolved. This would all be over if, if what you're saying is true. I know mean, this crap about seven suns, you know, you know, heating everything up and only people in the third jhana, you know, you know, don't get, you know, overheated. I mean, that, come on, that's silly. That's just mythology. Yeah, I don't know. But then we have all this silly mythology about suns super dwarfing and consuming all the... We have very similar... Very, very similar drishtis about how this earth will get consumed by our sun. And I want to, we need to get to the end of this because I can't do it to you again, where I leave you without the, the, the punchline. So let me just do the last five real quick. These are five views of nirvana, five views of the cessation. And the first one, so again, I want to read this because it's very interesting. So they're talking about. Nirvana, the cessation of suffering. No more suffering. That's what they're talking about. Now, these are going to be non-Buddhist non views of nirvana. And so, 58. So, there are amongst some ascetics and Brahmins who are proclaimers of nirvana here and now and who proclaim nirvana here and now for an existent being in five ways. On what grounds? Here, a certain ascetic or Brahmin declares and holds this view, saying, In as far as this self, being furnished and endowed with the fivefold sense pleasures, he indulges in them, then that is when the self realizes the highest nirvana here and now. Some proclaim it so. So that's what we would call hedonism, that that is the idea, that the whole point here is to maximize pleasure. Avoid pain, maximize pleasure, and if you maximize it, you win. I know a lot of people who have that view too, right? And then what it'll go on to say is that there are other summit sites and Brahmins who claim if you make it into the first dhyana, that's nirvana. And there are some that say if you make it into the second dhyana, that's nirvana. Some that say you make it into the third and finally, there's some ascetic Brahmin that say, if you make it to this upekshik state, the fourth dhyana, 
That is nirvana here and now in this world. Boom. Those are all 62 views. Questions before we get to the why I brought you all here tonight? So, here we go. These are the 62 ways in which those ascetics and Brahmins who are speculators about the past, speculators about the future, or both, how they put forward views about these. There's no other way. (laughs) Right? So, this monks, the Buddha understands. These viewpoints thus grasped and adhered to will lead to such and such destinations in another world. This the Buddha knows, and more, but he is not attached to that knowledge. And being thus unattached, he has experienced for himself perfect peace. And having truly understood the arising and passing away of feelings, their attraction and peril, and the deliverance from them, the Buddha is liberated without remainder. This is a Buddhist technical term, a pari-nirvana. So not just nirvana, pari-nirvana, no remainder. These monks are those other matters, profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, excellent, beyond mere thought, subtle, to be experienced by the wise, which the Buddha, having realized them by his own superknowledge, proclaims, and about which those who would truthfully praise the Buddha would speak rightfully. Thus, monks, when those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists proclaim the eternity of the self and the world in four ways, that is merely the feeling of those who do not know and see, the worry and vacillation of those immersed in craving. And when those who are partly eternalists and partly non-eternalists proclaim the partial eternity and partial non-eternity of the self and the world in four ways, that is merely the feeling of those who do not know and do not see, the worry and vacillation of those immersed in craving. So he goes through all of them, saying that's just, yeah, that's their view, all right, right? And then all the way through all of even those who have proclaimed nirvana here and now, da-da-da-da-da. And when those ascetics and Brahmins who are speculators about the past, the future, or both, having fixed views put forward views in 62 different ways, that is conditioned by their contact, meaning the things that they have come into contact with or have come into contact with. With regard to all of these drishtis, they experience these feelings by repeated contact through the six sense bases. Feeling conditions craving, craving conditions clinging, clinging conditions becoming, becoming conditions birth, birth conditions aging and death, sorrow, limitation, sadness, and distress. When monks, a monk understands as they really are the arising and passing away of the six sense bases of contact, their attraction and peril, and the deliverance from them, he knows that which goes beyond all these views. Whatever ascetics and Brahmins who are speculators about the past or the future or both, having fixed views on the matter and put forth speculative views about it, these are all trapped in the net with its 62 divisions. And wherever they emerge and wherever they try to get out, they are caught and held in this net. 
just as a skilled fisherman or his apprentice might cover a small piece of water with a fine meshed net, thinking, whatever large creatures there may be in this water, they are all trapped in my net, caught and held in the net. So it is with all these Brahmins and ascetics. They are trapped and caught in this net. Monks, uh, the body of the Buddha stands with the link that bound it to becoming cut. As long as the body subsists, devas and humans will see him. But at the breaking up of the body and the exhaustion of the lifespan, devas and humans will no longer see the Buddha. Monks, just as when the stalk of a bunch of mangoes has been cut, all the mangoes on it go with it. Just so the, the Buddha's link with becoming has been cut. As long as the body subsists, devas and humans will see him. But the breaking of the body and the exhaustion of the lifespan, devas and humans will no longer see him. At these words, the Venerable Ananda said to the Lord, It's marvelous, Lord. It's wonderful. What is the name of this exposition of the Dharma? Ananda, you may remember this exposition of the Dharma as the advantageous net, the net of Dharma, the supreme net, the net of views, or as the incomparable victory in battle over all views. Thus the Lord spoke and the monks rejoiced and were delighted at his words. And as this exposition was being proclaimed, the 10,000 world system shook. Okay. The, the end? The end. <laughs> yes. What I want you to repeat, I, thought, I don't want to write that down, was the six senses, if you sustain cessation of, you know, the beginning, the yeah. easy stuff that we can do. Yeah, that's it. I mean, what, what, what's that? You, you tapped into it, right? Uh, da, 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 da. Six sense doors, you said something. Mm-hmm. When monks, a monk understands, as they really are, the arising and passing away of the six sense bases of contact, their attraction and peril, and the deliverance from them. He knows that which goes beyond all these views. All right. So, I mean, there's so many ways to... To, to try to break this down. But I'm gonna, I only have 15 minutes, so I'm going to do it the quick way. <laughs> so when I did my Dharma talk on the drishtis, the thing that I talked a lot about was this idea of attachment and clinging. This is basic Buddhism. This is the second noble truth. This, these are the four noble truths, that this attached clinging position towards the world, ah, ah, wanting having, holding, clinging, owning, it causes suffering. <laughs> That's the Dharma. And there's a way in which, you know, this is very helpful, you know, information. And it's helpful in a very practical way in that the actual clinging to stuff can produce, like, sometimes it can produce physical pain if you're actually holding on to it too tightly, but it produces mental anguish for all kinds of reasons, Right? And so, yes, having a healthy relationship with our possessions is good. Yes, that's, we're working on that. But what this is about is about a, a more subtle, deeper form of clinging and attachment, which is the clinging and attachment to a view. I know that when I die, this is going to happen. Or I know that when I die, this is going to happen. Or I know this is going to happen. Or, I know this is all nonsense. Or, I know this is great. Or, whatever it is. Those are all drishtis and all views. 
And what's interesting, of course, is the line of this is that the Buddha is saying that if you have this view, yeah, that's what you're attached to. So guess what? That's what you're going to experience. That's how it works. And so, the, I, again, I just want to say it. The real subtle dharma here, though, is the non-attachment to views. That's the dharma. So that's not a drishti. That's not a drishti. It's actually recognizing drishtis. Being like, oh, wow, these drishtis are really tricky. Like, really, really tricky things. They're, like, totally formulating the way I think about everything and the way I value everything, the way I judge everything. So my worldview is this deep attachment and that, you know, and and in my Dharma talk, I went off a lot about how this works when we're attached to a view and then what happens when we're trying to listen to somebody that doesn't have our view, that has, oh my God, their own view, right? And how reluctant we often are to give up our view and how difficult it is to actually hear somebody else's view. It's because of attachment to views. And so this dharma, this subtle teaching that the Buddha is saying, this is why you should praise me, is because I don't have a drishti. I'm advocating the very, very loose openness towards drishtis. In other words, maybe, you know, but I don't know. The, The only thing I know is that I don't know anything. Like, that's the only thing I know. I don't know anything for sure. It's very akin to what's going on here, which is that the Buddha is sort of critiquing anybody that holds one of these 62 views and saying you have a really a rigid view based on what, you know, versus this sort of, um, again, really subtle dharma about what happens when you do this to your view. You, you have a looser view. All of a sudden, I mean, you know, and there's ways in which we can say that, like, oh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't believe in anything. But we do. And so the real practice of this is to really put your worldview, your belief structure under the microscope and be like, and why do I think this again? What is this founded on again? And the idea here is, is that you'll quickly realize that the basis of your knowledge, the basis of your drishti, it's all hearsay, rumor, super ego, things your parents told you, whatever, that you probably really haven't thought about your worldview. And so a bunch of people out there are trying to get you to trade in your worldview for their worldview. Oh, that's big. That's a lot of people going around saying, your worldview's wrong, but I've got, I got the real worldview for you. Just pay up. I'll give you the real worldview or whatever it is. But... How many traditions are saying, don't have a worldview? Actually, take the non-attachment even further and and take your mind muscle and loosen that up. That's that's why the Buddha says he would be worthy of praise. It's because he's promoting people to have no drishti. Profound. Yes, Susan? So, by that way of thinking then, is it permissible to be, well, I feel like I kind of cling to the view of I don't know and I can't know. I mean, is it That's is a view. kind of clinging, but that I cling to that view though. I hold that, I think I hold it more than I don't know, but that like we can't know. 
is there a distinction between those two? And is that okay? It seems like a really jury's outish kind of like meh, like very wriggly. Um, but is that what that's okay? Yeah, I mean, the idea here is is that it's really like, I, it's tricky. It's tricky to not settle on a on a view. It's like crazy, and it's a practice to do that. And but I would, in terms of what you were just saying, be aware that anything can be a view, even the view that I don't have a view. Like if that's like no, no, I don't have a view. That's a view. So what we're talking about is subtler than that. You know, we're talking about a very, you know, I often, you know, speak about it in terms of, you know, objects and things like that. And, you know, there's one mode, which is this clinging mode. And then there's another mode, which is the, I don't even mess with bowls. I just, I don't even mess with them. Right. (laughs) Then there's this, you know, where I don't possess it, own it and cling to it, but I still use it. Worldviews can be like that, especially scientific worldviews. You know, one cannot kind of have the jury out all the time in that way. And so it is this more softer, like, again, the temptation is, is, it's not even the temptation, it's just the way the mind works, which is, I'll I'll, I'll give up this worldview, but it's just as soon as I have my other one. Because I need to stand on something. And this is saying, not keep moving. Don't stop. Keep exploring. Keep looking. Keep thinking. Keep questioning. Keep inquiring. Keep, keep going. Because the, the difference is the, no, no, I'm good. I've been, I, know, I know what's going on. I'm good. I've, I've been to meditation land. I've seen my past lives. I know that's what's going on. I'm good. I don't need any more information, any of that. That's what the Buddha is saying. No, no, don't do that. Don't, don't look like a fool. Right? So it is this, this like, uh, you know, it's right along, even though this is a poly text from the Theravada tradition, this is really Bodhisattva path type of stuff where it's like, you know, this constant process of letting go. Constant. Like, even that moment when you're like, oh, I totally figured this out. It's like, oh, I got to let that go. But we learn, we're developing, we're, there's wisdom and all of that. But it's this. Again, I can't really say enough about it. It's this subtle attachment to a view. That it, and again, it's so subtle. Um, it's why I use this word faith, you know, because it's like a deep part of us. You know, our worldview isn't, in a certain sense, who we are in that way. And so there's a risk. I mean, so let's back off. Yeah, I have a few minutes. So, you know, let's back off the past of the whole universe and the future of the self and all of that. You know, a big drishti is a political view. The political view. My political party's right, yours is wrong. No, no, mine's right, yours wrong. And it's really dangerous for you to have your political view, right? That type, those are drishtis. And, and in, their, in a way, those drishtis are more active and at play in our world than these, because... You walk up to somebody and you're like, I believe in the afterlife. And they're like, I don't. Have a nice day. But if you go up to somebody and start exchanging political views, it can get like real serious really quickly. And that speaks to attachment to drishtis of the political nature. So again, what we're looking for is not um, the abandonment of my worldview. This like, oh yeah, screw that. 
no, no, no. We're not looking for abandonment of your worldview, nor are we looking for the clinging to some new worldview. Keep your worldview, but just be a little looser about it. Don't make, not that anybody here does it, but don't shove it into people's faces like, this is my worldview. You're an idiot if you have, you know, just chill. Chill on your drishti a little bit. And the idea is that it's a practice that that loosening will kind of potentially open you up to some new information and new ideas and you'll be like, oh yeah, it was silly for me to have that view. And then if you keep opening, it just keeps getting broader and broader. And so again, the idea of whether it's any of these 62 or your, whatever it is, that holding of a view is the proverbial blinders on that are keeping you from seeing so much. So much. Questions? Ideas? Yes, Michael. Um, That being said, um, you having read this, of all the 62 uh, Drishti, does Buddha give us any hints about like what's the one that really is what happens? No. Does he rule any of them out? He's saying, he's saying. None of these happen. He's saying these are all illusions. So there's like a 63rd that's the actual answer. No, there's, there's, there's uh, suffering and samsara and there's liberation. And liberation is through non-attachment and it's non-attachment to stuff, the self, and views. And if you let go of the stuff, meaning, and again, I don't mean throw it away. I mean relinquish your ownership, your sense of ownership over your stuff. Relinquish your sense of ownership so you're not attached to that. Relinquish your drishti. Again, don't throw it away, but just loosen it. And eventually you have a uh, not so tight a grip on the self. But, but he's not saying like, well, none of these are right. Like, like these are all off the table. It, I mean, he, he, the, he's, he, he's saying don't attach yourself to them. Well, he's definitely saying that. But is he... Is he saying, I mean, if, is he telling us these are wrong? No, it's because more... Because if he tells us, then I'm going to stop thinking any of these. This is, this is Buddha Dharma. So this is, Buddha Dharma is beyond right and wrong. We're beyond right and wrong. So the subtle thing that he said in this is that any one of these people, if they are attached to that drishti, that's where they're going to go. So they're all true. For, for this person that believes in the material future conscious self-existence, they're going to have a material future conscious self-existence. The person who doesn't, isn't. The person that believes in the hedonism, they're just going to go for that. The Buddha is saying, well, we get what we want in that way. And so they're all right. You know, right and wrong get tricky here. And, but your question is really nice because the idea is that, I mean, this is actually why I wanted to put this like, you know, it's like this idea of false or wrong is sort of not right. It's just these are the 62 views. Take your pick or be a Buddha and, and not have a drishti. Does this claim that when, like everyone gets what they think is right, but that's still ultimately dukkha, that's still suffering? Oh, yeah, that's the idea is all 62 of these people are suffering. They may not know it. Mr. Hedonist, who has his big, and he's like, ah, no, this is great. I'm satisfying my sensual pleasures, and I'm not suffering. 
it's like, okay, great. Have, have a good time with that, the Buddhist. But you're chilling. Yeah, and again, I mean, yeah, so the idea is that, oh, actually that brings me back to Brahma's net of view. The reason why this is called Brahma's net is because the idea is, is that to be speculating about all of this is to be trapped in Brahma's net. And I'll tell you too, I, I, this, is the, this is it. I didn't even, can't believe I didn't say this. I, I said it at one point, but I, I needed to like emphasize it. All of these are predicated on, are based on the understanding that there is an Atman. There is a soul or a self. Buddha denied that. That's the whole interesting thing about Buddhism. He says, oh yeah, I know it, it appears that there's a self. I know, I know. But there's not. And so, <laughs> that gets very tricky because even though, of course, there's no self, I keep having an experience that appears to be like a self, and it's been going on now for like 45 years. It just keeps feeling like I'm myself or I, that I have a self. And so just because the Buddha drops this, uh, what's called anatman, no atman dharma, just because the Buddha drops that on me, all of a sudden I, I don't grow ignorant of those last 45 years where it has seemed like I've been a self. But what the doctrine of anatman is about is trying to understand how there can be a sense of continuity without an actual soul of self. What there can be is, is the persistent illusion of a self that's caused by attachment. And that, as long, and that as soon as there's no attachment, it's not that there's no longer a self, it's just that the realization that there's no self is like actualized. <laughs> if that makes sense. So, so, yes, so in a way he's just like, all he's saying is like, the non-self is really the only truth and this is like, everything people happen to believe right now and that's subtly not true and like maybe 2,000 years in the future people will believe in another 128 sort of experiences and constructions and imaginations and so on, like that's also not true for the same reasons as roughly the claim. Yes. There was one thing that, oh, because the idea, yeah, again, this idea of like no self, I would encourage it not to become a view. (laughs) I would be a good Buddhist and encourage you not to have that be a view. And again, um, you know, this, when I say Buddha Dharma is neither true nor not true, it's, uh, it's the idea is, is that these categories, true and not true, are, again, human, all too human categories that's based on certain drishtis, that's based on certain ideas. And so this, when the Buddha says it's subtle, hard to understand, profound, because he's talking about this state of being that most of us are not normally in. Most of us are in a drishti, deep, deep in a drishti. Again, it's so subtle. It's so much a part of who we think we are. Again, whether it's your political affiliation, your religious affiliation, whatever, drishti is a sense of self. And so to let go of a drishti is, for the clinging self, a little scary. Because it's like, oh, that's my identity. That's my sense of, it's my sense of belonging and my community and all of that. So it's scary. But the idea is there are you know, green pastures of liberation waiting for you. <laughs> if you don't have that attached view. You said something in there that's interesting. Just like, is, is there a thing to the effect of like, truth and not truth are, are not everything? Well, it's just that thinking in terms of truth and non-truth is a drishti. That's a, like to privilege truth 
and discourage not truth and put things in those categories, that's a drishti. And, and just like the Buddha said, if you have that drishti, lo and behold, you will find yourself in a world of truth and falsehood and the ability to do that. And, that, and, it, and it's true. it'll be true then. It'll be the truest of true for you if you have that drishti. <laughs> That's and particularly subtle because like he's using the framework of truth and not truth like, to like split things up. And, like, yeah. I'm just reminded of one of the other talks that you gave, uh, the heap of tools. Uh, and it, it was that, that 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 Mara comes and says, "You can't do this to me," and and Bruce says, "Okay, I won't." And then Bruce said, "Why did you tell Mara you weren't going to do all of this because it doesn't exist?" Or it's it's, it's you know, Mara has an attachment. Yeah. So if I say I'm not going to do it, it's fine. Because neither one are true. Yes. And that's the net of views. Um, all right, folks. A new sutra next week. Thank you so much. <laughs>